1: Hello, my name is Michael Johnston, and this is another episode of New Books in Sociology, a channel on New Books Network. Today, I have Dr. Clara Herbert, who is an assistant professor of sociology at University of Oregon. and Today, we'll be discussing her book, A Detroit Story, Urban Decline and the Rise of Property and Formality, which was published by University of California Press in 2021. In this research, she examines the way that de jure illegal uses of property, like squatting, scrapping, and gardening, shape the form of the city, neighborhood conditions, and residents' well-being. Thank you for joining us today,
0: Dr. Herbert. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. So this book that's going to be published in
1: 2021 by University of California Press about uh, Detroit and the urban decline and the rise of property informality, how did this come about?
0: Uh, Well, I was living in uh, Ann Arbor, which is about 45 minutes outside of Detroit, where um, when I was doing my PhD at U of M, and I was really interested in, um, you know, sort of understanding what was happening in the city of Detroit generally. So I started visiting the city and um, was really interested in housing conditions there and you know, learning that people were squatting and scrapping and just that practices like that were taking on or were taking place in the city were really interesting to me. And I initially was kind of curious about, you know, police and authority responses to these practices. And so when I started studying them and looking into it more, I discovered that there really actually wasn't a lot of, um, of, of legal response by the city, right? There, there wasn't a lot of um, concern among police officers that there were people squatting in houses, and so this sort of the the framing these practices as, as illegal wasn't really helpful because it it couldn't explain who was practicing or who was squatting, who wasn't. It couldn't really help us explain when authorities responded or when they didn't. And so that's when I sort of shifted focus and used this sort of borrowed this lens of informality from decades of scholarship um, studying Global South Cities, sort of trained it on Detroit to try to make sense of how these informal practices shape neighborhoods and communities and, and individual residents.
1: And uh, you mentioned that uh, the police really weren't responding. Uh, what, what do you think the, the reason for that might be?
0: Um, it, you know, it's really interesting. Um, the police in my study I, who I interviewed were we're cognizant of the fact that, um, one, they oftentimes didn't have the resources to respond to illegal uses of property like squatting, but also um, they recognize that these practices are often beneficial for residents and for the community um, because when you have an individual living in a house, it's also protecting the structure. And Detroit and other cities like it, declining, you know, post industrial Midwestern, Northeastern cities. Um, Because they've experienced so much population decline, they also experience a lot of decline of the built environment. And so there is a recognition among police and other authorities that these practices are actually beneficial for the residents and for the community. Um, And so oftentimes they purposefully chose not to respond punitively.
1: Because they were kind of doing it themselves and and maintaining a community, creating solidarity within the small small groups that they or in, I think maybe in the book you had mentioned about how there wasn't much controversy uh, among the people who who were living there and either squatting or scrapping or gardening uh, mm-hmm. to shape the, their new city. Yeah.
0: Yeah. A lot of um uh, residents expressed preferring to have a squatter for a neighbor than an empty house. And when those are really their only two choices because finding legal occupants to be neighbors was very rare in a city that's losing population. And so they preferred to have squatters than, than no one living next door.
1: One of the policies though, that, that uh, were being enacted or at least explored by the city of Detroit, if I remember correctly, was this idea of right sizing technique or a donut model uh, that's being used by cities with declining populations. Is that, is that correct?
0: Yeah, so right sizing is this idea that there's kind of an appropriate population size for the sort of infrastructure, the built environment of a city, you know, because maintaining that infrastructure and that built environment, um, being able to, you know, have services across a wide um, or across a you know, the space of the city. Requires resources. And when you have a population that's declined in, in Detroit's case from nearly 1.9 million down to about 670,000, um, there's, there's not the tax base and there's not the revenue from residents that um, allows the city to, to continue to support itself. So, this right sizing idea is that you kind of shrink down the city um, or the spaces in the city wherein the local government um, and other agencies have to sort of take care of space. Right where they have to maintain water lines and keep roads paved and street lights on, you shrink down that space so that the city can um, can afford itself essentially. Um, and this was a res- this is kind of a, a response to what they call the donut model, wherein uh, cities like Detroit um, have lost a lot of population as residents moved out to the suburbs, and so the you know it's kind of the hole in the center with like the <laughs> the circle around it, and you can think of. Uh, declining cities is having these, you know, suburbs that have attracted a lot of residents, and the city being kind of the hole in the middle where it's lost lost population.
1: And that's uh, in large part as a result of change in industry, right? Uh, moving from the Great Migration, where people may have moved to the inner cities in order to be near their jobs and the factories, whereas now much of the uh, much of the work can be done from the peripherals.
0: Yes, exactly. Especially in places like Detroit, a lot of jobs, auto manufacturing, moved out to the suburbs. Um, residents with money and um, and residents who are largely white moved out to the suburbs because they could, um, which exacerbated problems, you know, racial tensions in the city and left a um, very dire economic situation for the city and for its residents.
1: And this might be a slightly a different story. How does Portland, Oregon, and Detroit, Michigan? compare in terms of the city's trajectory of growth and decline?
0: That, that's a great question. I'm glad you brought that up because, um, I mean, since I'm from the Portland area, uh, it, it was always on my mind about how these cities are very different. Um, and what I realized is that they actually both have very similar population to land size ratios. So Portland, um, is estimated to have about 650,000 residents. Currently, Detroit is estimated around 670. And both have, um, Detroit has square miles footage, or the area of the city is 142 square miles. Portland is 144. So that, to me, that kind of immediately puts a, a, a wrench in the idea that there's an appropriate population to, um, area ratio for a city and that it's more about the trajectories of growth and decline. So Portland has almost steadily increased in population since around the 1950s, whereas Detroit has steadily decreased since the 1950s. And this decrease has meant that there is this infrastructure and built environment for this much larger population that is no longer cared for, that's no longer used. There's not a lot of demand for it. And that's what creates these, um, I often call them, you know, these interstitial spaces where um, illegal activities take place or informal practices arise and where the built environment becomes very deteriorated and neglected because there's not enough residents or authorities or, you know, government um, supervision of these spaces.
1: I think continued movement just in and out, growth and decline uh, at at fast rates of uh, uh, people moving out and then new people automatically moving back in. That sort of shift of people, um, I think keeps uh, keeps some level of control and, and order within the community. Unlike Detroit, where people move out and they don't have replacement.
0: Yes, definitely, and and a lot of neighbors um, or residents who are still living in Detroit are, you know, have seen this dramatic change over time in their city and have lost a lot of neighbors and, um, you know, experienced a kind of. Um, some of them express a kind of heartbreak over that, right? Of, of continually see, seeing their neighbors um, and people that they know leave the city.
1: And we we discuss this as being a product of of a change in economy. Uh, but even within these uh, within the city, like Detroit, there's an economy of entrepreneurialism, uh, entrepreneurialism and uh, political agency that exists among the people. Could you talk a little bit more about that?
0: Definitely. Uh, so this. The, these terms, entrepreneur, uh, economy of entrepreneurialism and, and political agency, that I, I talk about in the book, um, are you know terms that I've borrowed from this scholarship on informality in the global south, and it comes from you know decades of scholars attempting to kind of make sense of of how it's best to frame informal practices because there um, for decades informality was framed as um, you know, sort of a characteristic of the poor, right? The poor engage in informal practices, whether it's squatting or garbage collecting and recycling or, you know, um, food vending, engage in these because they're poor and, and that's the only way that they can survive. But there's increasingly this recognition that um, that finding informal ways to survive and to get by and even to flourish are also sort of political statements, right? It's individuals asserting their their right to be and, and to um, to persist in the face of sort of overwhelming exploitation and, and oppressive conditions. Um, so that's kind of a piece that I, I try to highlight in the book that there's a positive way in which we can frame these practices.
1: Yes, and a lot of that has to do with these entrepreneurs who are um, who have a process of production and final products and do it yourself and and their own interpretation of the law that they take on when when. Uh, taking ownership of these blighted properties in the community? And, and how is this
0: done? Uh, so, I mean, there there's a wide range of practices that I study. And this is something that this this book adds relative to other literature on um, informal practices is that I, I don't just look at housing, and I don't just look at sort of economic activities, but I look at uses of real property across many different kind of domains. Um, you know, so squatting is a Technically illegal way to procure something which is largely regarded as legitimate, and that is housing oneself. Similarly, scrapping, um, scrapping metal from buildings, which is very, very prevalent in Detroit and can be a huge problem. Um, but scrapping is is a way of of sort of recycling the city that achieves the goal of um, of finding work for oneself and gaining income for oneself which for a lot of residents that's the way that they support themselves and their families and so it's sort of this um, the informality framework kind of pairs these you know technically illegal processes with socially legitimate outcomes Um, and that's what distinguishes them or distinguishes informal practices from illicit practices like uh like the drug trade right uh Producing and selling drugs is largely considered illegitimate, um, and whereas uh, growing food on uh, land that you don't own, even though you're breaking the law to do it, the so the product of that practice um, the outcome of it is that you've produced food, which is largely viewed as socially legitimate.
1: And a lot, of, uh, if I remember correctly, there were uh, many of these properties that uh, even if they wanted to go uh, go forward with purchasing them it'd be difficult to track down who originally owned that property as a result of it, of it just being uh, dumped and walked away from. So I I think some of the neighbors saw it to, as you said earlier, as being a a kindness to, to keep it occupied as long as they aren't causing any trouble or uh, fixing up pieces of land that were previously dumped on to create gardens.
0: Yep, absolutely. So I, I interviewed, uh, a lot of residents who were illegally using property in a variety of ways. I also interviewed residents who sort of, um, witness these practices as part of daily life in Detroit. And then my sort of third category of interviews was with, um, was with institutional actors, people who work for the city or influential nonprofits, things like that. And, um, a lot of residents expressed, residents who were informally using property, they expressed this inability to be able to actually engage legally in the way that they wanted to or may have wanted to. So trying to find out who owned the abandoned lot next door for them had been just this arduous process. They couldn't figure it out. Um, Some residents talked about, you know, having finally looked up and been able to figure out who was on the records as being the legal owner of Of a lot or a house only to then track down that owner and call them and talk to them and have the owner say oh yeah yeah that's not mine anymore it's just kind of stuck in the system and you can't get a hold of it and so um, sort of some of the the problems i think associated with this this massive increase in um property in the city that the local government is um, tasked with surveilling and sort of expected to maintain when owners are not, um, it's overwhelmed the system, right. And it's, um, for decades they've had, you know, there's record keeping problems and unclear titles and housing gets passed from generation to generation without it ever legally changing hands. So there's a lot of sort of, um, it becomes very difficult sometimes to suss out who's responsible for what property, um, which then impedes the ability for someone to take ownership of it if they want to.
1: And you know, initially um, in this conversation, I'm sort of lumping a, lumping all of the people together into a single category. But uh, your your research is more defined than that. And the and uh, some things that popped up is is a typology mm-hmm. of uh, necessary appropriation compared to lifestyle appropriation and routine appropriation. I, I guess maybe to start off with, what what are the necess- who are the necessary appropriators and what is necessary appropriation?
0: Absolutely. So, necessity appropriation refers to um, practices by predominantly longtime residents who appropriate property um, generally to promote survival. Uh, these tend to predominantly be um, very poor residents. They tended to be older, like o- about over the age of forty. Um, they were overwhelmingly black. Um, they most of them had lived in the city nearly their entire lives, and for for these appropriators. Um, Squatting in houses or scrapping from buildings was really how they survived from day to day. They didn't have better options for, for housing. Um, they didn't have, hadn't had any luck with formal employment for many years. And so it's, it's how they were able to survive. And The lifestyle appropriators? Uh, So lifestyle appropriators are predominantly newer, younger, mostly white residents who have moved to the city in large part because they're sort of seeking this urban pioneering lifestyle that they think Detroit can offer. Um, And they tended to appropriate property as a kind of fun or adventurous practice that helps them achieve this lifestyle that they desire. So these residents tended to squat houses sort of on the way to purchasing them they would squat them for a while and then try to track down the legal owner and um and buy them they often fix them up um even before they own the property uh, lifestyle appropriators frequently engaged in forms of urban agriculture some started large farms and gardens um that they even were able to survive on you know to sell the produce from and get by on that um, other lifestyle appropriators would salvage materials from buildings to use in home renovation or art projects. And for them, um, sort of overwhelmingly appropriation was something that they enjoyed that they kind of got some satisfaction from and that helped them have sort of a life that they wanted to have. because for many of them too, I mean, I'm not lifestyle appropriators are they're more economically stable than a lot of other residents in the city or a lot of the necessity appropriators. But it doesn't mean that they could afford to, you know, go buy a house in the suburbs <laughs> necessarily. And so being able to squat um, land and housing in Detroit really enabled them to sort of have this lifestyle that they couldn't afford somewhere else.
1: And then a routine appropriators.
0: So routine appropriators kind of bridge these two other categories. And I I actually like to think of it more of a spectrum from necessity appropriation at one end to lifestyle appropriation at the other. And routine appropriators were predominantly long-time residents who were more economically stable than necessity appropriators. um, And they began to appropriate property sort of slowly over time in an effort to combat the conditions that were sort of increasingly problematic in their neighborhoods or communities. So, For some of them, this meant that they started um, getting together with other neighbors and and tearing down drug houses that were problems in their neighborhood, or they started um, keeping up vacant lots next door when houses were burned down or demolished, um, you know, mowing the lawns and and even fencing off um, the lots and taking them over as yard space. Um, Some of these appropriators also would kind of dabble in, in scrapping as a way to supplement their income because... Sometimes their their formal work wasn't always quite enough to get by, um, so routine appropriation sort of arises from the routine negotiation of the obstacles of life in Detroit, and really aims at sort of um, promoting stability for their own lives and in their neighborhoods.
1: Excellent. So the routine appropriators and necessity appropriators tended to be inside groups that were doing uh, doing good for their community in order to rebuild the. The community that they that they uh, idealize that they that they hope for living in, whereas lifestyle appropriators tended to be outsiders coming in and uh, maybe even viewed by some as colonialists or uh, settler colonialists who were gentrifying a community that was not theirs.
0: Yes, so this is an interesting tension that I came across in um in my research that there was this. Yeah, very kind of insider-outsider tension among appropriators. And on the one hand, I mean I don't want to over dramatize it because a lot of um, residents in Detroit were glad to see newcomers moving into the city. Um there, you know, new people wanting to live in Detroit was an affirmation of, you know, the goodness of the city that they love so much and, you know, was promising for the future of Detroit. One resident told me he was hoping more white people would move onto his block because then the police would come if someone called because they would respond to white folks more than black folks. Um, and so there was, you know, on the one hand, uh, an appreciation of newcomers in the city, but longtime residents also expressed just kind of being bewildered at the fact that people would want to move to Detroit and engage in the practices that they themselves wished they oft- often wished they didn't have to do, like squatting. Right, residents who are squatting out of necessity were just like, "Why would anyone want to come here and live in a rundown, abandoned building when you have other viable alternatives?" Um, or routine appropriators were kind of like, "Wait a minute, why why wouldn't you come here and start salvaging materials from buildings when we wish that we didn't have to take care of the buildings that are falling down that the government's not, you know, doing their job to to maintain?" Um, so that that's kind of tension that arose of um, sometimes longtime residents not really understanding why new residents would want to participate in appropriation. Um, but I I make the the sort of I draw parallels with the process of settler colonization because um, settler colonialism is you know the process that sort of has founded countries like the United States where the government has made space for outsiders to settle and sort of start a new society by stealing land from those who were there long before when this land didn't fit the liberal private property model. And that is a parallel that I see unfolding again in Detroit. And a lot of scholars have sort of um, pointed out commonalities with colonialism and gentrification, but I think that there there are more layers to it here because um, what I see happening is that as local and regional government attempts to respond to the plethora of abandoned property in the city, um, that they are also taking property from residents who are using it informally and sort of offering it up to these newcomers who are able to legally purchase the property and solidify their legal right to the space of the city. And um, it is yet to be seen sort of how, how much this process um, ends up erasing the presence and practices of longtime residents in the interests of these newcomers um, and Detroit's changing so we'll we'll have to see what happens.
1: Yes and it's uh, I think it's almost inevitable with uh, change that occurs over time uh, either through uh, through natural environmental changes that are occurring or through envisioned uh, scenescapes that uh, are organized and developed by uh, by humans that being said how 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 are um, these two different tracks maybe uh taking co-occurring in, in Detroit did you notice either of those tracks either uh from above determining what they want their want the city of Detroit and these neighborhoods to look like whereas some of it is just and then the other side the natural occurrence of it
0: of uh of the greening processes, or of yes. neighborhood change generally,
1: correct the greening of the spaces and the and uh, and responding to the decline in growth.
0: Yeah, so that's an it's an interesting um, sort of problem of uh, you know what to do with all of the sort of extra space in the city, if you will, and um, some of the sort of tendencies with the right sizing approach is to turn areas of the city that are, are either not used at all or underutilized back into kind of green space or nature. And the idea there is, you know, then it decreases the burden of responsibility for government to maintain these spaces because they're, you know, turned into parks or sort of wetlands or wild spaces. And that doesn't Th- that creates tension for some residents because they want their city to be a city. They want it to be maintained. They don't want, you know, the the vacant lots across from them to be wild and have you know waist high grass and pheasants running around, which is common a common sight in Detroit. Um, but at the same time, there's a actually a really sort of deep history of urban agriculture in Detroit. And many residents there have been gardening and farming for decades. And so this idea that it's something new to be introduced from outside is is a very sort of problematic erasure of the, you know the practices that lots of residents have engaged in for a long time. Um, but it does sort of bring up this question of, you know, how what is the future of Detroit going to look like? Is it going to be a modern city with modern amenities? Is it going to be a city that integrates sort of you know, nature and the urban or, um, or will it, you know, repopulate and sort of fill up the space again? And I don't, I don't actually see that happening. But (laughs) um, there, there's a lot of different orientations towards how appropriate it is to kind of green the city. And I think all those perspectives need to be brought into consideration.
1: Well, and to understand privilege, I think, is important, and also to understand uh, the disadvantages that some populations have, and to at least make certain to consider and uh, give the vo- a voice to the people who have, lo- who have long lived there, instead of just coming in and sergeanting and, and gentrifying the city based on a design that some architect put together. I think that's important in uh, in creating change in any community.
0: Yes, I agree.
1: So one of the uh, groups that we haven't really focused on that much uh, are the necessary appropriators and uh, potentially routine appropriators in this uh, case. And, and the question that I have here is about scrap yards. Mm-hmm. They appear to be open overnight. Why is this the case?
0: So it's, it's not the actual scrap yards aren't overnight, but to fill that gap in sort of service um Oftentimes, informal scrapyards are set up outside of the scrapyard overnight. So people will, um, you know, pay for scrap material overnight and they'll pay for it at a very reduced price um, so that scrappers who are, you know, desperate for immediate income or immediate money can sell their scrap even if the scrapyard is closed and I, I compare this to the many, many other ways in which, you know, people who are very poor and very sort of desperate for money end up paying more for things, whether it's checking cashes or getting groceries at quickie marts, um, you know, the poor often pay more for basic services. And in this sense, the the scrappers who are most desperate for money are also getting less for their scrap because they're selling it to these sort of informal scrap yards overnight.
1: And some of these people weren't uh, working in isolation uh, from others. Some of them were working together as teams to, uh, to be more efficient in the work that they're doing, uh, and then splitting their return. Is that accurate?
0: Yeah. So I I found that collaboration among squatter or sorry scrappers is is pretty common, and I speculate that it may be increasingly becoming common or becoming more common. Because as some scrappers in my interviews said that the city has become scrapped out. So it started to be scrapped, if I recall correctly, around like the 70s or 80s when the prices of metal increased dramatically. And that provided more incentive you know, to sell scrapped metals at scrapyards. Um, But so many people have done that for so many decades that scrappers report that it's now harder to find the materials that they can sell, primarily copper, steel, and aluminum. And so that they're increasingly getting to the point where they have to sort of deconstruct entire buildings. And um, working in collaboration with others can make that more manageable and hopefully a little bit safer for them as well, though. It is a, it's a, Becoming more and more risky, in part because of sort of the depths that scrappers have to go um, to get these materials, and um, firefighters in my study referred to scrappers as pancakes because frequently they um, would get crushed in buildings when they were trying to get material, get metals out of them.
1: Yeah, that's the that's kind of on the topic of the specialization of uh, of the scrappers. Some of them took on an identity and particularly focused on certain items that they would scrap or certain types of buildings that they would go to. Uh, You talk about Grant who focused on industrial buildings, while Bond worked on houses that had burned down. How did this specialization start to emerge within uh, the informal labor force? Um,
0: It's an interesting question, and i I don't I don't have an exact answer to that, but I can speculate that um, for for those two individuals in particular that their sort of forays into scrapping were very different. So Grant is someone who um he said he had been visiting the city for many years um sort of as a youth and exploring vacant industrial buildings kind of for fun. And when he got to the point in his life where he was relying on scrapping for income uh and because his he he developed a drug dependency um he knew these buildings, he knew the industrial buildings in the city, and he knew where to find the metal that he was looking for. Whereas Bond had been working up until he was in his 50s, and lost his job during, um, I think prior to the recession, if I'm calling correctly, and just was unable to find a job, could not find another job again. And so he started, he turned to, to um, scrapping much later in life. And my, my guess is that because he was a Detroit resident, he had more familiarity with the neighborhoods and an understanding of the way that city officials might respond to um, scrappers' presence in different buildings. So he was very, he, you know, primarily targeted houses because they were easier and because um, if they had burned down, then it kind of exposed the metals more readily and made it easier to extract them. It was also very clear that he would not ever cross the boundary of the city into the suburbs because if you left Detroit, he said they would. He's, they would. uh, The police would respond very differently to scrapping beyond the boundaries of the city.
1: And the the behaviors that they were doing, the scrapping, uh, uh, oftentimes was illegal, or at least if not illegal, it was uh, definitely um, pushing boundaries. Mm -hmm. Did did you look at? uh, Did you by chance look into Sykes and Madsen's concept of Moral neutralization uh, and how the scrappers justified their behavior.
0: I have not come across that, but I am very interested to go look it up now that you've mentioned that. Okay. Excellent. This being
1: this being said, uh, the behavior is is informal, oftentimes pushing boundaries as to what is legal and illegal, what is illicit mm-hmm. and illicit, uh, regardless of whether the police decide to pursue it or not, or the local government decides to pursue it or not, what impact uh, would the formalization of the space through law and policy have on the residents of Detroit, Michigan?
0: It really depends on um, how they're formalized. And so I conceptualize two different kind of modes of formalization that I see taking place in the city the first one I call co-optative formalization, and this refers to, you know, when kind of the state, generally speaking, um, legalizes informal practices. Like, and a quintessential example is um, a, there was an agricultural ordinance that was passed in the city in, I think, 2014, which made agriculture a legally permitted use of land in the city so that residents who either were currently engaged in, you know, farming in the city or other forms of agriculture um, Or who wanted to they could they could turn their, you know, their current practices into legal practices, they could now buy property in the city for the sole purpose of farming, which is what a lot of people had been doing informally, because they weren't allowed to purchase land without the intent to build on it, unless it was adjacent to a legally owned property. So it sort of expanded this this example of co-optative formalization. It expands the ability to legally own property in the city and to continue these informal practices formally. The other mode of formalization I conceptualize is suppressive formalization. And this is when um, sort of the state, generally speaking, um, attempts to get rid of certain informal practices, either by increasing punishments for them by criminalizing them in new ways or by trying to get rid of the possibility for them to exist. So examples of this include the, um, in 2014, a new anti-squatting law came on the books and this is a statewide law, but prior to, prior to this, squatting was a civil issue. And so in order to get rid of a squatter in a house legally, you had to go through civil court and evict the person. Um, Whereas after this new law, um, it's, let's see, I'm forgetting the exact details of it, but um, there are new punishments imposed, including fines, felony um, charges, even jail time for repeated offenses. So it enables, you know, the police to get involved in squatting in a new way and gives more power to property owners to control that property. Um, Another example of suppressive formalization is uh, is actually demolition. And I, I, demolition is a, it's very complex in a number of ways. And I recognize, and a lot of literature recognizes that there are um, benefits to cleaning up the built environment and getting rid of property that might be potentially dangerous to to um, residents if they end up engaging with it and it falls down on them or something like that. But we also have to recognize that getting rid of all of the, um, all of the property in the city that squatters and scrappers rely on for income and shelter also removes the ability for them to get by in that informal way. And that is a perhaps intended, perhaps unintended um, impact of new demolition efforts, sort of widespread demolition efforts in the city. But I think that policymakers need to be more attuned to the impact that those kinds of new regulations are going to have for the informal ways in which residents are sort of getting by and and making a life for themselves in the city.
1: I can't help to think, uh, not think about, I can't help but not to think about Matthew Desmond's work on uh, with evicted when he was Mm -hmm. working with uh, these informal uh, positions that people take within these uh, uh, deteriorating cities in order to simply get by. Yep, definitely. Well, I'm all out of, we're all out of time. But uh, I, I have to ask, what's your next project? What are you working on now? Uh,
0: so I'm continuing this um, investigation of informality in a U.S. context. And this is a sort of a growing area area of literature of recognizing that um, informality is not just a, a sort of a characteristic or a practice common in the global south, but increasingly um, scholars are, are finding it in, in places across the United States and Canada and, and other sort of so-called global north cities and I'm uh, looking at the um, the laws and regulations that allow uh, urban camping to arise this is something that's very common on the west coast and you know the sociospatial environment of of housing and um, population and things like that on the west coast is very different than the midwest or the northeast where I was before um, coming to Eugene and so I'm Sort of shifting lenses to look at how that is taking, how informal housing practices and sheltering practices are taking place in the context of unaffordable housing and, and a lot of demand for property and um, focusing more on the, the role of the state in actually creating informality.
1: Yeah, the coastal region going up and down the uh, coastal highway there from uh, Oregon all the way down into California, it's interesting to find those, uh, to see how much space is actually empty along that highway. Uh, but even some of those areas are being, are, are being built up and built over, leaving a uh, little space for uh, nomadic populations who may have been squatting in those areas. Mm-hmm. Definitely. All right. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Herbert. This has uh, been a pleasure.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It was great talking with you.
1: This was another episode of New Books in Sociology, a channel on New Books Network. Uh, thank you, and I look forward to talking with all of you soon.